Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, just when you think you understand what's going on with this economy, well, there's something like this. The sudden collapse of Silicon Valley's bank and signature bank. President Biden trying to convince Americans that the system really is safe. But the big question is, how much of this is about how people either know about something, understand, or maybe they feel about a topic? How does psychology play into a bank run? And how can we all be sure that our money is really safe? Plus, do you know who's using face recognition on you? Maybe right now? No, we're not doing it right now, everyone. Rest assured. But it could be happening more often than maybe you even realize. We're going to tell you who's using it and why. And this probably sounds like a joke, what I'm getting ready to tell you, but really, it is deadly serious. The government report says that some crash test dummies may not represent, and I'm quoting here, diverse groups of people. How could that have a real impact on your safety? Well, it's not what you might think. We're going to talk more about that. We've got a lot to talk about sight and fact. And here with me, our economic expert, Rana Faruhar, strategist, strategist Karen Finney, um, the Bulwarks, Bill Crystal, CNN's own Phil Mattingly, and analyst Kirsten Powers. I'm glad you're all here. And don't worry, I know more about the economy than apparently pronouncing strategist all of a sudden. So there you go. It's fine. Um, Rana, let me start with you because you're away from us for a moment. I'll get back to the table. But I want to know what your take is because it's one thing to know something conceptually, intellectually. It's another thing to actually know how you feel about it. When you think about the idea of hearing even phrases like a run on the banks, people get very, very nervous. Should they be? Well, you know, I love the fact that you're bringing psychology into this. It's something that doesn't get talked about enough. You know, we hear a lot about the technical aspects of banking. And, you know, I want to just say to the audience, if you have $250,000 or less in an account, you are FDIC insured and you're fine. So I want to just say, you know, don't panic. But yeah, psychology is a huge part of what happens in the financial markets, even in good times, right? And, and especially in bad times. Um, so there is no question, um, you know, talking to the folks that I know in the markets that just seeing people start to pull their money out is a trigger for more people to do that. And you're seeing that already with some of the sell-off in, in other regional banks um, in, in the last day. I mean, there's that, but will there the other banks that might fail as well? That's one of the concerns. And maybe most people don't have the two banks that have already been saved in some way, but they might have others. Are those going to follow? You know, I'm not worried about this being a kind of a Lehman Brothers moment or or even a, a multiple bank collapse moment. I really am not. And, you know, I, I keep my money in large institutions. I haven't moved it out, uh, not planning to. I look at those institutions, the, you know, the JP Morgan chases, the, the city groups, and I say, you know, they're in a lot better shape than they were before the financial crisis. I'm not worried about that, but I'll tell you, there is something here that is a real worry and is psychological as well. And that's that 
I think most Americans know that we've been in a period of very, very low interest rates and very easy credit for a very long time. And we kind of know that in our in our hearts and in our in our minds. And we know that that's going to change at some point. You know, I mean, the economy does go up and down and we are due probably for something of a correction even more than we've seen at some point. And I think people feel that and that gets to the psychological issue that you raised. I'm going to bring in Phil and everyone here at the panel as well. I mean, Phil, again, the president was very much interested in talking about how people are feeling to make sure they know that it's safe. It reminds you a little bit of what happened back in the Union Address where he's talking about, listen, you may not realize all the things are happening, but because you don't feel like things are happening. But he's talking about it optimistically then. This time he wants that same level of optimism. He wants people to feel like, look, the banks are safe. Is he convincing in terms of the messaging, you think? I think there's a difference between State of the Union and political messaging versus the necessity for the system-wide kind of health right now that you saw from the president today. These were very intentional, very deliberate remarks shortly before they opened the markets, intended to try and reassure people. The psychology element of this is so critical. You can look across history in terms of bank runs and financial crises and just how critical what people are thinking, whether or not they're panicking, whether or not they're seeing other people or their friends pull money out and how much that drives a crisis type moment. That's why you saw the president say what he said today. It wasn't because he wanted to feel people to feel great about things. I think they're very cognizant of the fact that this was a very difficult weekend and there's a significant amount of anxiety around the country. What he wanted to do was reassure people that the system is strong and stable and well capitalized and that this one bank or these two banks are not representative writ large of a system that is in a very strong place, particularly compared to 2008. You have some reporting too about the Treasury officials thinking there are some positive signs to look to. What is that? Yeah, look, the scale of the response over the weekend was dramatic. And I'm not sure people totally have their heads around what actually happened here in terms of what the FDIC was willing to do in terms of backstopping all deposits for these two institutions above the 250000 mark and making it pretty implicit that they would be willing to do it for other institutions if they needed to as well. The Federal Reserve facility opening a lending window to these regional banks that got hammered today in the bank stocks, they still have access to liquidity because they have options with uh, this lending facility. And what Treasury officials that I spoke to saw throughout the course of the day were two things that are a little bit deeper than the bank stocks themselves. Mm -hmm. Deposit outflows are critical here. The big concern on Friday and heading into Monday was these regionals, mid-sized, smaller banks would see dramatic uh, deposit outflows and they would become in a crisis moment and start to fail. They started to see a slowing on that front and they saw availability to credit, availability of liquidity to these banks, even as they got lit up by Wall Street and the equity markets. Those are good signs. I mean, is it just me? But I think about all these different ideas yes. about that. Yes. You took the words. I was about to say that. You know? I walk right into it. You know, I'm in like you my walk right into that. optimistic, glass half full, sunny blazer. No soup for you. I'll be over here for a second. Fair. fair. For you, though. You can have it. You can have it. But everyone else, I mean, just the idea here of I hear the, the amount. I hear about liquidity. I hear about Wall Street. I hear about what maybe most Americans are not necessarily feeling in tune with. They're going to think if the big banks are, are being saved, if you have big investors in tech, they're not saying themselves here. And they, exactly. they themselves might feel afraid. Well, that's exactly, I think, what, what I think a lot of people are feeling. It's like, yes, everyone watches the government rush in to save all these extremely wealthy people, right? People who are keeping more than $250,000 in the bank. Some of it is because it's payroll. Some of it is because they made a lot of money off of crypto and they're, they're keeping their money in this bank. And they see the government run in, in it's, we're talking hours, not even days, uh, to deal with this situation in a way that they don't when the entire housing market crashes 
because of the behavior of bankers and people lose their homes, they lose their retirement accounts, and they're just sort of left hanging. And so I think if you're the average person, you're like, is the government going to do this for me? Um, I don't know. You know, and, and the truth is, Joe Biden doesn't really know if the banks are stable or not. I mean, we think the banks are stable. Probably most of the bankers are not as stupid as the bankers who were running this <laughs> bank who didn't understand interest rates. No, I mean, truly, I know nothing about finances, and I knew that interest rates were going to go up. Right, right. And they had taken all the money and invested them in T-bonds, and it was completely dependent on interest rates staying low. And that's what happened to them, is they gambled with the money and they lost. Well, there's the confidence but- of that, and there's a lack of confidence on the other side. Yeah, but you know, one thing that would help confidence around the country is if the president of the United States made a speech and the speaker of the House, who happens to be from the other party, said, you know what, we all stand together at this moment. We have to have confidence in our banking system. The president and the secretary of the Treasury and the chairman of the Fed have done the right thing. And we'll debate later on whether we need to change the regulations and Dodd-Frank and all this other stuff. But for now, the banking system is safe and the president and Congress stand united. And if the leading candidates for presidency from the other party said the same thing, once upon a time, this would have happened. You know, in 2008, for all the mess with the Tea Party and the revolt against the original bailout, at the end of the day, Speaker Pelosi was with President Bush and I guess whoever the Democratic Senate Majority Leader was back then, who was Harry Reid, Harry Reid, and, and, and they all held and they all held hands, and they said we will make this work, and that was much, much, much more serious crisis, and we made it through. And so it's really it's bad to have one of the two major parties have so many of its leading figures just demagoguing this. It's yeah. a woke bank. Yeah. It's a terrible bailout. We can't. That what then voters look up and think, or citizens look up and think, well, I don't know, maybe this isn't a good solution, you know? Whereas it is absolutely yeah. the right solution at this moment. What do you think, Karen? Well, I think it, you know, Ron DeSantis is not going to pass up any opportunity to call something woke. And I agree <laughs> completely. The fact that a bank advertised on their website that they have an LGBTQ plus person and two women and an African-American on their board, that's not why that bank failed. <laughs> right? Yeah. If they the were banks dumb. never failed <laughs> in the old days when they were only, well, only white yeah, males. Of course, they, they never They were failed. never banking so crises back so then. So thankful for know? that. So. <laughs> Even yeah. Mary Poppins had a bank that failed. and They were all old white men. I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> no, so, I mean, I completely agree. It is really sad that there could not have been that unity. That's a state of where we are, and that's just the reality. I think within that, the president did the best that he could to go out and try to reassure people. I think the other thing on the psychology we have to remember is we're also still all in trauma from the pandemic and from how that affected our finances and our lives, not just the PTSD from 2008. So I think there was a real understanding of the need to um, try to make people feel as confident as possible today. And I wonder if it translated. I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's about how people are feeling about something. It's the old adage in politics. How do you feel about this? How do you feel now versus five years from now, five years ago, et cetera? And the idea of thinking if it comes to money, I mean, my great grandmother died at 105, never trusted the banks. I mean, there's other factors involved there. <laughs> With that, there she was, 105. When she passed, it's fine. Yeah. Everyone wore on and this. And she left you $32 million. She had stashed in the mattress. It's under the wood. I don't Amazing. know. In the mattress. If there, if- if that's the news, I will not be at this table right now. Right now, listen, the signs are pointing to a possible Trump indictment in New York. But with all the investigations swirling around the former president, how does something as momentous as an indictment of a former president, how has this come from a years ago hush money payment to an adult film star? We'll discuss it next.
Donald Trump's one-time attorney, Michael Cohen, is calling out what he calls his former boss's, quote, dirty deeds. Testifying for three hours today before the Manhattan Grand Jury that's investigating hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels, saying this on his way into the courtroom. My goal is to tell the truth. My goal is to allow um, Alvin Bragg and his team to do what they need to do. I'm just here to answer the questions. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is also, we're going to talk about in a moment what's going on there. But, you know, this issue happening right in the heart of New York, um, this is something that we have been seeing for quite some time, right? Actually, not some time, for years now. People knew about Tommy Daniels back in 2016. And Norm, you and I have had these conversations before about the timing of things. You know, timing really is everything when you're talking about maybe public perception in the court of public opinion particularly. Why now this, do you think? Well, Laura, the two of us between us have spent over half a century trying cases, and we know that it takes time to build a case. When you're building a case against a former president, DOJ was looking at this. Michael Cohen pled guilty. Mm -hmm. But there's a DOJ rule. I think it's wrong. But the Office of Legal Counsel has said you can't prosecute a former president. So they couldn't even think. A sitting president. uh, A sitting president. They couldn't even think about it until the end of the Trump administration. So there's four years. Then Alvin Bragg gets in. It takes some time for him. He thinks, well, maybe I won't do it. Maybe I will do it. The important thing is to look at the merits of the case. And I think the merits of this case are strong. There was a New York State books and records violation. They booked the hush money payments. Trump signed checks the Trump organization, those associated with him, they booked him as legal fees to Michael Cohen. These weren't legal fees. And that's what Michael is undoubtedly explaining to this grand jury. So it is a righteous uh, prosecution if Bragg brings it. But the law of that would be, of course, a falsifying the business records, right? A misdemeanor. Then you'd have to say if it's in in conjunction with trying to um, subvert election law or campaign finance law in some way, that's your felony. But you know what you were saying, righteous, everyone sort of cocked their heads in different directions and I was seeing it out of the periphery for a moment. Um, is it because you maybe think it's righteous, but the, not the right case? Well, I just think it's ironic that it's taken this long. And now we can compare that to an insurrection trying to thwart an election in Georgia. What else do we have here? Oh, yes. Classified classified documents. documents. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so it is also a reminder that when you talk about how much time it took for this case to get to this moment where people feel like perhaps charges are imminent, think about how much more, how long it will take these other cases, particularly because Y'all have been, you know, you guys are lawyers. I'm not. But I would think if you're going to take on uh, the former president, you want to be very buttoned up. You got to make sure your case is rock solid, especially against someone like Trump. I think it's more than that, though, when you make when you listen all those different aspects of the different cases, because I think if people were to rank what they saw as the most important cases, the ones that have the most impact maybe on the nation, I think they would probably collectively say, I don't want to speak for everyone, that the hush payments may be lower than the January 6th or classified documents. And for that reason, does it give political pause that this might be coming first? What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, and I think just not even thinking of the legal things that Donald Trump has gotten caught up in, but just of all the things Donald Trump has done, this is definitely one of the least worst things that he's done. 
right? It's like, there's just so many worse things that he did as a president in terms of policies and things like that. So, you know, I think that, you know, my concern, and I do defer to the lawyers, but my, my concern is that I don't see it really as a slam dunk because I think you are relying, first of all, on a witness who openly hates the person that he's testifying against, who is known to lie about things. So I don't know that he's the most reliable witness. Michael Cohen. Yeah. And also, I think you have to get into almost like an intent kind of thing. Like, did he do it as a because he was concerned about the election or did he just not want this to come out? Right. It's like, did he not want his wife to know that he cheated on her or something like that? It just it feels it, it feels like it's hard to prove and it is not very high stakes. And yet, you know, and I, I don't want to be dismissive of, to, to, um, to your point, Norm, a, a violation of the law ought to be treated the same as anyone else who may have violated that same law. And we know that that's not the way our system works, that people turn a blind eye more readily towards, against some and others. But on the idea of the priorities and how this plays out even politically in the court of public opinion... Do you think that this case could be used if they do indict for Trump to buttress his own arguments that, hey, see, they'll try anything just to get Liberal Democratic elected DA is going after me. Of course, that's what he'll say. That doesn't mean you shouldn't follow the law. Of course. But but I'm yes, Trump will say that. And here's 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 the thought experiment. This happens in two weeks. What do the other Republicans say? They have to defend Trump, right? DeSantis, who otherwise is happy to see Trump, will say, well, this is political prosecution. Suddenly half the country is going to believe right off the bat that this is a political vendetta by the Democrats. No Republican is going to defend. You think think the governor will actually say that of Florida, will actually support and say, oh, kind of the way that um, Hillary... You think that he'll he'll say that it's a political persecution? Yes. I think every Republican will have to say that because they need to win over voters who still like Trump, even if they want to move on from Trump. But this... When, when was the Sorry Daniels thing? 2008 or something like that? Well, no, no. We, we when was the actual election. incident? Yes. Right. right. So then, right. He, then he pays off. He pays her off in October of 2016. Does something that John Edwards ended up getting off for somewhat different, maybe legally. <laughs> I just think it's the worst possible case to lead with. When he tried to overturn the election results and yes. purposely stole classified documents and wouldn't give them back. Maybe the Justice Don't, Department. But- maybe the Justice Department could do something. I know it's to it. I've been a defender of Merrick Garland. <laughs> Norm's going to chastise me after the show, but. <laughs> He's only been out of office two years. I mean, we, we got to wait five, eight, 12 years before we can have an actual case Number from the Department one. of Justice of the United States. Number one. Okay, Let's away. wait and see what is in this indictment. We Fair. don't have all the evidence yet. Sure. Number two, it is a very serious matter. I don't accept for a moment that a few days before the election, after the Access Hollywood scandal, when this election was so so close. Uh, Donald Trump was involved in making hush money payments that Michael Cohen went to jail for. This is a very serious matter. It could have changed the outcome of the 2016 election. Then let's not assume that there won't be more that Alvin Bragg does, that other prosecutors do. You need to start somewhere. Last time I checked in the United States, the rule is This is the whole idea of America. We have the same law for everybody. If Michael Cohen would go to jail for doing this, if any of us would go to jail for doing this, if these hush money payments could have changed who went into the White House and they could have changed history, it is absolutely right for Alvin Bragg to start there. And let's see 
what's in his indictment. Maybe he'll have other financial crimes. Right on. This, is why, Norm, this is why Norm is a, is a, is a very well-known lawyer. I mean, I, I you know, Norm should make the case. case. I'd be happy if you were prosecuting this. I know, but the defense this. attorney has made the case for the prosecution. You know, it's really, I don't know we've what's going switched, on. We've switched we places. I, no, no, I... No, I'm I'm in my yellow blazer over here, just doing something <laughs> totally different right now. But I see you, and I think it's important for us to all wait and see what it has. Right. I want to know what happened to the to the time Michael Cohen went to prison, and now what's new? We'll have to wait and see, and I'm yeah. eager to find out. Everyone, also, I'm also eager to find out what's going on in New York City for different reasons, because Mayor Eric Adams has floated using more face-based recognition technology in trying to combat crime. But could there be unintended consequences, including potential abuse of the technology? We're going to talk about it next. (laughs) New York City's Mayor Eric Adams is asking local businesses now to use face recognition technology as one way to battle shoplifting. The New York Times reports that any business using this scanning has to post a sign alerting customers that it's actually using the technology. But when a reporter set out to find which businesses were actually scanning people's faces, she had a very hard time finding any signs. Back with you now, Karen Finney. We're also joined by CNN law enforcement analyst Michael Fanone, and also back, Norm Eisen, and also Kirsten Powers. Let me just help understand this conversation for everyone. There is the use now of this facial recognition technology that essentially tells people, look, you're on a list and if I can scan your face as you're coming in out of my office or my building, wherever it is, you can't come. It's a way of identifying people for theft-based reasons or otherwise. Madison Square Garden infamously has the owners who, if you're a lawyer who is suing them in some capacity or anything like that, you also can't come in. It seems like it could be ripe for abuse. And it's increasingly being used now and being called to be used as a way to aid in law enforcement. What do you make of that? Problems or a good idea? Uh, well, first of all, when I came on law enforcement uh, 20 some years ago, we still hand wrote our reports. So I'm technology averse. <laughs> that being said, um, I was always skeptical of the overdependence of technology by police officers. Um, I saw when we first in, you know, brought about the tag readers uh, that Ooh. you would scan license plate readers in, in the city. Officers became incredibly dependent upon that uh, to help with, you know, proactive enforcement. So I, I do have concerns about the idea of becoming too dependent on technology. And also I have concerns about the idea that we would replace police officers with technology. Uh, to me, you know, I see the benefits of this, um, you know, these types of technology, uh, but my concern would be that, um, you know, that we become overly dependent upon it. Well, here's what the mayor had to say about the reasons why they're even using it. Listen to this. In fact, he talks about that. He says, I'll read it for you and said, if you are a habitual person that goes into a store over and over again, you should be identified and even use a technology. Why wait until someone steals? There's some good software that can alert people right away that this person is a habitual person stealer. Now, of course, my immediate thought is, how does one get put on this list? Is it somebody who's been convicted of a crime already? Is it somebody who's been accused in that particular store? Is this a way of engaging in a kind of technological profiling? What do you say? Well, with all of these new technologies, it's like with the artificial intelligence now, the AI 
we have to figure out what are the reasonable parameters around how to use them. I'm very sympathetic. The representative of the United Bodega Owners on behalf of these small businesses said, look, we want this because we have a shoplifting problem. My parents had a small business. I'm sympathetic to that. But by the same token, it almost when when Mayor Adams was talking about it, it almost seemed like a dystopian science fiction movie where they would predict people. What if they get people wrong? What if someone looks like uh, a shoplifter? What if your twin is a shoplifter and you're just going in to buy toilet paper? I mean, we have to think through the due process elements of how these new technologies are going to work. So I think it needs to be studied and analyzed, although I am sympathetic to Until the toilet paper reference, it was the plot of Minority Report. What? Right for Tom Cruise, that was the idea of having precogs yes. decide that somebody was going to probably commit a crime right. by raising all sorts of due process concerns. Everything Tom Cruise has been talking about the law for some reason um, and these issues. But the idea, and you have a strong opinion of this, because the idea of being able to identify and predict criminal behavior is going to run you up against a whole lot of issues. And I go back to the idea of profiling. Here's who I think is likely to commit a crime. Right. And so I'm going to create, maybe there's, maybe there's an algorithm, I don't know, maybe there's a way of distinguishing people, but it poses problems for the average person who is going to be assumed to commit a crime. Well, and think about the stores that you frequent. I mean, when you, when you were reading that quote, I'm like, well, I go to Sephora at least twice a week. So if you're clocking mm-hmm. how many times I'm coming in and that's getting me on there, you know, in their video stream, I, you know, trust me, I drop a lot of money there. There's, there's no stealing going on. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing that is really disconcerting is that we know that these technologies tend to not be as accurate when it comes to African-Americans and Asian-Americans. And I have not seen anyone yet solve that problem. I see that that is still a problem. So, again, in terms of due process, in terms of, a, a, I agree, over-reliance, they're also make there's responsibility to make sure that it's accurate and to make sure that you don't while trying politically to be able to say to your city as the mayor I'm trying to do more things to keep everybody safe which for a political reason I, I understand why I would say that that you don't go too far in a different direction. On that point, the idea of politics, I mean, the idea of being soft on crime versus being hard on crime, this is very much in the political zeitgeist as to showing what you think about crime in your in your city. And New York has been under a microscope for a long time. Well, I think you can say that you don't like crime and you want to stop crime and also say that this makes you uncomfortable, right? I mean, I two things I think of. One is, okay, for the bodega o- owner, well, what do they then do? Are they now going to start confronting people and saying, you match up with this or everyone's going to have security? I mean, and then what's going to happen? And then the person's going to say, it's not me. And now maybe you've accused somebody in front of all of their neighbors of stealing when in fact they haven't stolen anything and it's just a mistake. That's one thing. The second thing is just the idea that the government has access to like, I mean, I, I don't understand how this stuff works technologically, but it would mean that all our faces are somehow recorded somewhere. If well, you let can me be recognized. I want to be clear I mean, on this like, point. I want, thank you for raising that point because yeah. under New York law, the business cannot, I don't have to share any of the data and you identify the recognition. Not every human's recognized. It's those who are on a particular list or all those who have been pointed out as a problem, I understand it, and then they are identified through the technology. So, it's a, you know, if you were a problem for known, mm-hmm. I have a way looking for you in particular, as opposed to just getting everyone and registering who we are. Yeah, and I'm that, sure it will never get out of control. It no. will never yeah. fall into the wrong hands, and the well, government will never abuse it. <laughs> and they've tried putting <laughs> like, laws around it. 
There's a rule in New York. You're supposed to have signs posted everywhere. And it's like a 500-buck fine. The same do reporter wandered all of Manhattan and could not find. There were many places that had the technology. She could not find very many signs. So the rules have to be established. Real quick. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the big concern is how it's implemented. Um, I mean, I see the, you know, the, how it could be incredibly beneficial, a great tool in the toolbox if it's used for collecting historical data to solve crimes. Proactively, though, I think it creates much more problems than it could potentially solve or resolve. Speaking of the idea of being able to help solve crimes, our next segment is going to be a really interesting one. It was a murder case that went cold for more than two decades. And now a California man has been sentenced to 25 years to life for the 1996 killing of college student Kristen Smart. And it all got reignited through, thanks to a true crime podcast. And that podcaster who helped law enforcement joins me next. The man convicted of killing college student Kristen Smart in 1996 was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison without parole just last week. And that was due in part to my next guest. Chris Lambert didn't know Kristen or her family. He isn't a journalist or even an investigator. But his podcast, In Your Own Backyard, launched in 2019, and it helped local authorities solve this murder. And Chris Lambert joins me now. Chris, nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining. You know, um, I'm, I, I listened to your podcast. I remember following what happened. Many people who are remembering Kristen Smart and, and imagining this has taken this long to lead to a sentencing um, of her killer. What made you follow this story? Well, it was a story that was local to me. Um, Kristen disappeared about half an hour north of where I grew up. And so it was something that happened when I was very young. So I remember hearing when they would do updates on the news, uh, checked in every few years or so. And then the biggest portion is there's a big billboard in the town of Arroyo Grande, about 15 minutes north of me. And it says missing and it has all of her information. And when I would drive by it, I just thought, how has that case not been solved yet? What's going on? And so I would check in from time to time to see if there were updates. And it almost seemed like there was there was never anything new. You didn't just check in. I mean, the actual the, the sheriff's office actually gives you credit in part for helping to solve this case. Tell me what kind of help you provided. Yeah, so initially I started out just trying to make a documentary podcast about what had happened already. I think by that point it had been 22 or 23 years since she had supposedly disappeared. And so I just wanted to document the story because it was such an interesting saga They'd had a suspect from almost day one, and that had never really changed, but nothing seemed to be getting done on it. So I wanted to document the case, and then by the time I ended up putting out episodes, it got such a large following so quickly that people started reaching out to me to say, I actually have information that I have never shared before. And so it it provided a platform for people who had been holding on to information that they were hesitant to share with law enforcement to bring it to me. And so I passed that information on to law enforcement and hoped that they would follow up on it. And they did. They absolutely did. And I mean, it actually ended up leading to a man serving 25 years to life. And as you say, it was actually one of the people that 
was the um, initially a suspect or initially somebody who was in contact with her that very night of her disappearance. I mean, you actually had a friend, though, interestingly enough, who personally knew Paul Flores, the man who was convicted now for the murder and serving 25 years to life, that they knew him from high school. Um, what did she say about him? Yeah, I started asking people if they remembered this story, and a lot of people had forgotten it. A lot of people didn't remember the details. And a friend of mine who I'd known through other projects reached out to me and said, I actually went to school with Paul Flores, and we all called him Scary Paul. And so I reached out to her and I said, tell me more. I want to know everything you remember about this guy. And from there, she would pass me on to a friend who had more experiences with Paul. And then they would pass me on to another. And so pretty soon there were a circle of people communicating, saying, you need to talk to this person. Now you need to talk to this person. They have more information. You actually also, I mean, interviewed multiple members of her own family. And as I understand, they have been very happy, um, if that's the word that can be used in these circumstances, that you were able to shine a light and reintroduce this very important case to the world. What have they told you about how they felt these all these years not having this solved, let alone a conviction? What have they said about this now? Um, I think for many years, they felt like this uh, case wasn't taken seriously from the very beginning, law enforcement was slow to respond. They blamed Kristen for her own behavior that night, for the way she was dressed, for how much she might have drank at the party she was last seen at. And so for a long time, it felt like it, she wasn't being taken as a serious missing person case. And then after that, the media coverage slowed. Um, the progress on the case seemed to slow. And when the podcast came along, it sort of gave Kristen a voice again. It it reignited this story that was starting to disappear from the community. And suddenly people were remembering Kristen in a way that they had never known her before. Friends of hers were telling stories about her and, and so much so that I felt like I got to know her myself. So important, the work that you've done to help. Thank you so much. And of course, um, her tragic death also led to greater coordination down the road between college campuses and local law enforcement on how to deal with somebody who's been missing. So her story continues to impact so many people. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. My panel is back with me. I, I want to get your reaction quickly on this, Michael, because the idea we're seeing more and more cold cases go cold for a variety of reasons, including you know the finite amount of resources that can be devoted in the time to different cases. What does this mean to you when you have people like podcasters, for example, who are helping to be the liaison between the community and law enforcement? Uh, I mean, at, first, at face value, and I don't know the uh, specifics of this particular case, but it looks to me like a best case scenario. Um, you know, you, you have a situation where it looks like there was cooperation between this investigator uh, and law enforcement, and that um, that resulted in a successful prosecution and conviction yeah. of this individual. Um, I'm willing to bet that, you know, for each case like this, there's probably a dozen more in which, um, you know, the influence of or involvement of outside uh, investigators uh, may have had an adverse um, result, you know, when you have individuals, civilians, for lack of a better term, get involved in these types of investigations, they don't follow the same protocols, chain of custody. Um, you know, they, they don't understand the, the rules of gathering evidence. Um, 
And so I, I think that that's concerning. Now, listen, law enforcement does not have the resources to dedicate the appropriate amount of attention to every single awful crime that's committed in this country. Um, and that's no fault of law enforcement. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think that um, law enforcement is best suited to handle those tasks. You know, these things are great to bring attention to cold cases or cases that may have fallen by the wayside. Uh, but I think it's probably best to leave the investigating to, uh, to law enforcement. Well, you know, I know your heart's in the right place, but tell that to the families of those who are missing. I hope that there's a lot more people who get their best case scenarios, too. And if the podcast does it, shines a light, I hope it works out. Everyone, we're up next. They're used to making sure, uh, they're used to make sure that our cars are safe. I'm talking about crash test dummies. You see them right there. We're all familiar with them. Strapped in, and this one was hurled into walls at different top speeds. But regulators are now saying they may no longer represent the average person. So what does this mean for vehicle safety? I'll explain next. All right, calls for more diversity in, wait for it, crash test dummies. Now, before you write off what I'm saying as culture war has gone wild, consider this. A government report finds that crash test dummies used by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration are not representative of our population. For example, the average adult male is now 20 pounds heavier than the 171-pound dummy. Blame the pandemic or not, I don't know, but it's true. And for women who are more likely to suffer injuries to their lower legs, apparently, well, the crash test dummies have no sensors there for whatever reason. And in some of these tests, the female dummy isn't even placed in the driver's seat. What's that about, I wonder? So does this make you less safe on the road? Let's bring in the panel and talk about it. Because these numbers, I mean, when I first saw the headline, I'm going to admit, I thought, what is this about? The idea of crash test dummies being more diverse. My assumption was thinking that he meant race in some way, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, we're talking about physiological features and the idea of how to make the body actually withstand the harsh accidents that can happen. What do you think? Well, I'm sorry that I'm no longer the weight of the average crash test dummy. That's point number we're one. Not, we're not talking about weight on this show. Yeah. I'm going to put a kibosh on that right now. Thank you very much. The, it's Girl Scout cookie season. You it is. That weight I right had now. a half a box to power up for the show. <laughs> the uh, Look, this is just common sense. We were talking before about trying to figure out what is common sense on the facial recognition. Now we know the crash dush dummies do have to be adjusted for the weight of average Americans. We do need to have those leg sensors. It's just common sense. And uh, um, we know the technology that we need. The Department of Transportation needs to adapt their crash test dummy program. I mean, does this, does this suggest an alarm, taking a step back, does this suggest that there are a number of things that we take for granted about safety as a matter of inertia? That it's always been this way. We assume that it will continue to be this way. And the methodology we use to make sure we're all safe is just going to be okay. Are we not taking enough time to reflect on the things that are part of the status quo that actually will impact our lives? Sure. I mean, we, we take for granted, for example, I mean, early on, breast cancer research was not done on women. So just let that sink in for a minute. I mean, and literally, it was a, there was a movement to get that to actually come to fruition, to have that research done on women 
um, and to track it more effectively. So sure, I mean, sometimes whether it is health or safety, it, there's, it's common sense. You know, hey, if we're a little heavier, I'm not going to talk about weight, but if we're a little heavier, we're a little shorter, we're a little taller. Yeah, I'd like to know that my sensors are going to pick that up in my car, that it's probably too expensive. I mean, it seems performative then, right? The idea of trying to have these these things that we all remember and see from commercials that we get hung up on the performative, almost visual soundbite. What do you mean? The idea of if it's not actually going to be effective, if it's not taking into consideration all oh. the things that will keep us safe, it's yeah. just performative and it's well, illusory. They're not, yeah, so they don't think they're doing it in a performative way. I think that they do think they're doing it in a way to test safety, but for some reason they aren't considering when they're doing their tests, when the government was doing their tests and they were only doing tests on white men too, not just men, <laughs> white men. Um, they, you know, it's basically, you say we say common sense, but it's like, what is wrong with people? Like, you don't think that like women are people, or you don't think that people people who aren't white are people. I mean, that's basically what they're saying, and it's the same thing here. Like, someone has to explain to you that women are shaped differently and different sizes and smaller. And I mean, this this is their responsibility is to take care of everybody. It's not the responsibility to just test how things affect white men, basically. Well, I'll leave it there, everyone. Thank you so much, because former President Trump going after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We'll take a look at it next. Former President Donald Trump speaking tonight in Iowa, his first trip to the crucial campaign state since announcing his now third White House run. Rival candidate Nikki Haley and likely contenders Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence also making trips to Iowa, hoping that the conventional wisdom is true, that the base wants to move on from Trump. Here with me now, Karen Finney, Bob Kuzak, Editor-in-Chief of The Hill, Mona Charon of The Bulwark, Tia Mitchell of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm glad you're all here tonight. First, let's begin with what Trump is saying about Governor Ron DeSantis. And I know you're all like, oh, what's he saying? Let's play it for a moment. Here's what he's had to say. Ron DeSantis, did anyone ever hear of DeSantis? DeSanctimonious, DeSanctimonious. Now, Ron DeSantis strongly opposed ethanol. Do you know that? And we don't even know if he's running, but I might as well tell you. If he's not running, I'll say he was fine on ethanol. Don't worry about it. He also fought against Social Security. He wanted to decimate it and voted against it three times. Voted against Social Security. That's a bad one. The fact that he keeps mentioning MTA, I mean, he is under his skin. The idea, he hasn't know if he's actually announced or has run yet, but he is focusing on him. Yeah, well, he has no one else to focus on, really, because there aren't a whole lot of candidates, number one. And of those who poll, Ron DeSantis is the one that kind of keeps pace with Donald Trump the most. But I think it's interesting because Ron DeSantis is taking the opposite approach. You know, he doesn't talk about Donald Trump at all. If he does, it's only to say, well, you know, he was an okay president. You know, it's almost like he's acting like Donald Trump's not on his mind at all. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious, Ron this, Ron that. There'll be more nicknames too. Of course. He's got to find one that sticks because DeSanctimonious is I don't know if it's happening. You're not moved by it. But the idea, but he has had taken the, the, the role that you probably tell your kids when there's a bully, right? Ignore him. Ignore him. Don't pay me any mind. Whether it's effective or not in the long run, a different story. Yeah. I mean, in DeSantis's ideal universe, he'd be able to say, I'm the ideal successor to Trump and so on. The problem with this strategy is that Trump is standing there like a brick wall. 
And he is going to have to deal with that. Trump is going to attack and attack and attack. And eventually, DeSantis is going to have to take him on directly. He can't ignore him. He can't pretend that he's not there. And if he doesn't respond directly, he's going to look weak and ineffectual. And so at some point, this confrontation is coming. It has to. And that idea of the confrontation coming, though, you think about it. I mean, um, confronting him is one thing, but the way he does it will be really telling because we've seen that many have, you know, many have come up to the plate and struck out when it comes to trying to go against Donald Trump in the tit for tat category. What should the approach be, to Mona's point? Well, you know, you know who ignored Trump in 2015 was Jeb Bush. Hmm. That didn't work out. Okay, so I think DeSantis, who's kind of stalled in the polls recently, in New Hampshire, Trump is doing much better than he was earlier. So Trump, even though he's got all these problems and possibly getting me indicted on a couple things, maybe three things, um, he's still doing quite well in the polls, and he knows how to campaign. Now, DeSantis had a great win for re-election, won by 19 points. But that's in Florida. And I think I think you're right. I think DeSantis is going to have to start uh, jabbing back at him because right now uh, Trump is keeps poking him. And th- I think that's effective. You know what DeSantis has, though, that Trump does not, Karen, and that is an entire legislative session that mm-hmm. can take place while he's the governor of the state and the media focuses on him right. for all of his conversations about woke culture, et cetera. It might as well be clickbait for many people who are hearing what he has to say. He's got this whole period of time before he might declare. Is that part of, you think, the strategy here? It certainly seems that way. And it also seems that the strategy is to avoid talking about Trump directly for as long as he can. But I agree that they've got to make the calculation, when can you no longer avoid him? At some point, because one of the things we're going to want to know is, okay, can you throw a punch? Can you take a punch, right, from Donald Mm. Trump? And as you said... A lot of folks have failed. But you're right, both between the book tour and the legislative session. I mean, we're already seeing this in terms of, I mean, even over the weekend, he said that the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank was about, you know, woke ideology, which, you know, again, he will say that as many times as he can because that's part of his Mm -hmm. mantra. So he does have many more opportunities to continue to get press on things that have nothing to do with Trump. Um, and it will be, I think, probably New Hampshire, Iowa, where he'll face more of those questions and it'll be a little bit harder to ignore it. I want to bring in uh, Sheila Kolhatkar, who is a former hedge fund analyst and a staff writer for The New Yorker. Trump also, as you know, brought up the banks tonight, saying our economy is in shambles. What is the reality, though? Can you fact check that? Well, the economy's, uh, it's a a bit in a funny state right now, as a lot of people have pointed out. So there's been a lot of complaining and hand-wringing about inflation. And the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to try and bring down inflation. But at the same time, we have this incredibly strong employment picture. And unemployment is very low. Wages for median workers have held up very strongly. So it's a little bit confusing to a lot of people. It doesn't fit into any easy category. Uh, I think the storyline that the economy is apocalyptically bad and on the brink of disaster has just not borne out, although it does seem to play into the talking points of some of these candidates pretty regularly. Speaking of that talking point, this was Karen's earlier point as well, the idea of Governor Sanders talking about um, that these banks fail, the two banks that were um, that filled over the weekend, Friday and Sunday, as a matter of having too much focus on diversity and inclusion. 
Um, the fact that I have to even ask, this is, this is not rhetorical, like you actually answered the question, but I'm asking it rhetorically nonetheless. Did diversity and inclusion have anything to do with why these banks failed? So I, I, I've, I've enjoyed watching them attempt to link these two things together. It's sort of comical. The idea that, you know, wokeness or diversity somehow led to these banks collapse is completely nonsensical. These banks were run by capitalists. They were run by uh, businessmen who were trying to maximize their profits and who did not carefully analyze the risk in different parts of their company and think about what might happen when interest rates went up. Very simple thing, it could have been avoided. It had absolutely nothing to do with any of their personal views about uh, diversity or anything else for that matter. Well, speaking of personal views, I want to go to you, Mona, on this. And I want to remind the audience, you may have been saying there's been a lot of conversation happening over the past weekend about we know who is running for the Republican side, at least one person, maybe it's like two or three at the moment. But Biden is presumably running, right, to be presumably. To presumably, presumably running again. He hasn't announced it yet for another term. And the assumption would be in modern American history that the running mate would be obviously the incumbent vice president of the United States. And yet we're seeing article after article and conversation that is wondering if that indeed is the case. And we have this brewing issue with Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was speaking about Vice President Kamala Harris um, several uh, months ago, and there was this conversation she had on a radio, and she was asked the question of whether um, Vice President Harris would, in fact, be the running mate or should be the running mate yet again. We remind you what she said, causing all the brouhaha. Listen to this. I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team. I've known Kamala for a long time. I like Kamala. I knew her back when she was when she was an attorney general and I was still uh, uh, teaching and we worked on the housing crisis together. So we go way back, but they need, they have to be a team and my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. What do you make of this statement? A lot of flack towards her and apparently reporting is that she has since called the vice president twice to apologize and uh, Ghosted. Yeah, line's busy. Look, um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of feeling on the part of Democratic partisans that this is unfair to Kamala Harris, that she was given very difficult tasks by the Biden administration. And anyway, vice presidents never really shine. Uh, they say, look at Mike Pence, what did he accomplish? And so on. And yet, there some of these stories are disturbing, like the New York Times one, where they went to her, to Harris, and they said, who should we talk to uh, to get you know, good reports about you? And she gave them a series of names, and none of those people had anything good to say, which is not really what you want to hear. On the other hand, because of the nature of our politics, even though she would be a drag on the ticket, there is absolutely no way that he could replace her. She's a black female, first black female vice president. If he were to dump her for somebody else, even for another African-American, it would look terrible and it would hurt him. So the only way that he could, you know, in, in theory, even have another running mate is if she voluntarily stepped back. So would she be dragged on the ticket? I think there are people who don't think They've been very critical of Vice President Harris as vice president. And some of that, I think, is just it's hard to be that second 
person, any vice president, you know, ask, what did Joe Biden do when he was vice president for eight years? People can't give us a whole long list. Um, that being said, I think it's, uh, you're right, it's untenable to replace her. I also think there's extra attention on Vice President Harris because our president is up in age. Right. And so the the possibility that he could get sick, he could fall like Mitch McConnell had a fall, anything could happen, and that she would need to step in is more of a reality than I think most vice presidents have had to face that real scrutiny of, do we want this person to run the nation? And I think that adds to what Vice President Harris is bearing in that role. Do you want Yeah, I mean, I just, obviously I'm a supporter of the vice president's. I think she's done an excellent job. And I think, you know, most of these stories have not actually focused on the work. They have focused, as we tend to see with women, focus on what she's wearing or what she said or how she said it. We see that with women elected officials. I mean, there's 20 years of data on this. But the other thing I would say, a couple of things. Elizabeth Warren should have known better. She's tried to call twice. She also knows that there's a lot of women in the party who are not happy that she didn't have the answer ready to go in that question. (coughs) Number two, what I would say is we always hear these stories about this time we had it around Mike Pence, about Dick Cheney, about Al Gore, about Joe Biden when he was vice president. Uh, there's always this conversation about should so-and-so, you know, change up the ticket. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have done polling in 2020 to, and saw that America actually likes them as a team. And I think we should also remember she's very popular with the Democratic base of the party. And that's why Biden would uh, suffer, I think, if he tried to not. But they're running. They're running together. So... Presumptively. Presumptively. (laughs) More ahead, everyone. When we come back, Michelle Obama's advice for 20-something, Sasha and Malia, and what it's like to be, as she says, on the other side of parenting. I just tell my kids, there's, as I was just saying, there's so many ways to be happy. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways to find joy in life. And you're just starting the journey Former First Lady Michelle Obama is opening up now about her role as a mom and how it's been changing now that the two Obama daughters, Malia and Sasha, are out of the house and living together in Los Angeles. I'm at, on the other side of parenting. You know, I'm, I'm moving from mom-in-chief to advisor-in-chief, and that's a lovely thing to be able to watch my girls fly and have the relief that, okay, I, th- I think I didn't mess them up. <laughs> Back with me now, Karen Finney and Bob Cusack. We're joined also by senior legal analyst Elliot Williams. And Tia Mitchell is also back with us now. There's, first of all, it's so refreshing to kind of get this inside the perspective and hear what was sort of going through the minds of people we were all watching at this very moment in history even now. But there was one that really stuck with me, and I want to play it. It's, she's talking about how she's evolved to the point where she doesn't greet her daughters with a critical eye. Listen to what she said. Sometimes when our kids walk into the room, we greet them with what's called a critical eye. Mm-hmm. Like Malia came in and she was wrinkled. <laughs> Whatever she had on was very wrinkly. <laughs> and she was actually coming to my hotel room to find the steamer. She walks in, maybe the second time I saw her this morning, and I was like, 
you're wrinkly. <laughs> you're going to do something about this. And she's like, yeah, mom, I'm going to. And then I thought I did it. You know, I greeted her instead of what I felt, which is, <gasps> sit on my lap, give me a kiss. I'm fixing things. You know, part of me heard that and thought um, they must have been very taxing to have been the first and be in that position and to think about how the world was looking at your children all the time. We all talk about how your parents will say, when you leave this house, right, you're representing your father and me, you're a reflection of how we are. And you're thinking what the weight must have been like in those moments. Did you see that? I did. And just think of how remarkable it is that by every measure, her children are functional human beings now. Think about being in that crucible, not just, you know, it's not like Amy Carter, who was, uh, you know, older, um, or the Bush daughters, who actually, they're, they're fairly young as well. Yeah. But, but to get my point, though, it's uh, these were children uh, who grew up under that kind of eye. Um, and the, what, it could have ended much differently. Let's put it that way. Well, it's all, I was just going to say, it's always a challenge. When I worked in the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton actually had a conversation with Jackie Kennedy Onassis to ask about, for advice, about how do you help your children when they're in an environment like this where you have to be able to make some mistakes. That's part of being a kid. Mm. But understanding that the cost of that, and this was in the 90s. I mean, think about the, where technology is with the Obama daughters. Social media and, in and of itself. Exactly. So any mistake you make, it is on a world stage. And so how do you find that balance in giving them the ability to fly, as she said, but protecting them a little bit? And you think about it as a parent um, and just the way that you, you imagine this going, especially in the political space, mm-hmm. a first lady in particular, right? The, the role of a first lady has changed over time, right? It's not just the shrinking violet if there ever was and thinking about sitting there and looking like an accessory to the person who's really in charge of things. I don't know how that, if it was ever really true, but that's how the perception was. And, ha- and having her now really come out more and more and talk about and shine, but also talk about her feelings on the issue as a former first lady, her views on what it was like to leave the White House during the Trump inauguration. In fact, she was asked, I think it was Hoda Kotb was asking her the question, listen to what she had to say, Bob, about um, how she quieted herself in the White House. Listen to this. It was no accident that the administration was scandal-free. It was no accident that, you know... That our, our children had to show up right in the world. They carried a burden of making sure they weren't messy because it wouldn't have been laughed off. It wouldn't have been just, oh, it's youthful, whatever. It would have been some bigger statement about the soul of black folks. <laughs> so we didn't underestimate that. But that, that weight is exhausting when you're carrying mm-hmm. that. What do you see as the impact of her being so candid? I think this is why uh, her her numbers are so good. And there's still speculation she might run for president Mm. if Biden does not. She's very (laughs) real. You look at you look at uh, comedians or movies or TV shows. You want to relate. I mean, I have a daughter at college. I have another one going to college next year. Mm. And and that's real. And that's that's what I think more politicians need to do. Connect on real life situations and she opens up and she was very, and they were understandably very protective of the kids as far as like the press and that kind of thing. And most of the press I thought was pretty good. Um, you know, hey, we're hands off with that. And I think that also helped their development. But without a doubt, she was watching them like a hawk. And now I know she's advising them 
from afar, but she was advising them very yeah. intensely in the White House. Are we going to see more of that? We often, I mean, I remember reports about, you know, um, different spouses who are almost propelling and catapulting their spouse who is running for office into a different light to shape the narrative or the impression people have of that person to make them maybe seem more relatable, make them feel or have it conveyed in a real way. Are we going to be seeing more, knowing that she is so open and transparent now, um, are we going to be seeing this more as you think as a political trend? Is it helpful? Well, I think we have to remember she's being transparent now. She mm-hmm. wasn't during those eight years that her her husband was president of the United States. She, you know, played the role, as she said, that, you know, understanding the weight of their position as the first black first family. Um, but now she's um, taking those shackles off and allowing herself to be more transparent about a lot of things, about uh, marriage and the struggles they've had there, which she would never have felt com- comfortable talking about their marriage issues when Barack Obama was an active politician. And the same with now that she's talking about parenting and and so many things. So, I mean, I think it's refreshing, but I think when you're on that big stage, when you're talking about national politics, particularly, most politicians aren't going to feel free to be this transparent because of the risk. Anytime the Obamas talked about race, it was made a thing. Remember the beer summit, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, so a lot of the things she's saying now might have been a scandal if she had said them when they were still in the White House. But she's a little bit freer now. Fascinating to think about that. Well, we'll see who's not or maybe is. Not going to be as free going forward. Everyone stay with me. We're talk about text messages and emails that were freely sent between some Fox News hosts. Well, will those actually be a part of evidence in next month's trial? We're going to talk about it next. Texts and emails revealing the true opinions of some Fox News hosts that the 2020 election was, in fact, not stolen because it was fair and free, despite, by the way, publicly pushing those lies on the airwaves. Well, they're all pretty riveting to read. I mean, you've probably been watching and combing through them and figuring out what, who said what when and what they talked about. And they've been released as part of Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox. But the real question is, are they admissible? Will they be admissible in a court of law? My panel is back with me. Elliot, listen, all these messages, like Carlson says he hates Trump passionately. Everyone's picked up on that. There's a whole host of them when people go, wow, that's they think about this person. But this is a defamation lawsuit, which has its own standard. Yep. Will these be admissible for relevance there? Not everything will. Many will. Some will not. Think of these text messages in two buckets. Things that are bad for Fox as a news organization, maybe embarrassing um, for, for an entity that sort of purports to tell the truth, and legally bad text messages or, or legally bad information. You know, something that something like um, Tucker Carlson hates Donald Trump. Look, it's it's sensational, it's sexy, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it's hard to see how that's going to play to the question of, number one, did Fox News, however you define that, um, knowingly publish false information that damaged Dominion's bottom line? And a judge is just going to have to look at each individual text message and see if it's the legal term is relevant to the case. And a lot of those messages, if they're even if, no matter how exciting they are, they're just not, quote unquote, 
relevant. Relevant to prove the elements that are required for defamation right. law. Or damages or as damages. well. So some of, some of the things that may not go straight to defamation may actually um, play into the damages question, how much, if Fox has to pay, how much they should pay. There are messages as well, by the way, about how um, between Lou Dobbs and his producer from November back in 2020, the producer saying Sidney Powell's lawsuit was complete BS, privately dismissing election conspiracies that were promoted on air. Is that more significant than, say, the how I feel about somebody? No, absolutely. Because, again, um, you're going to have to broadly look at the question of knowledge. What did producers know? And if they're looking away and saying this person's crazy, but putting her on air and presenting the information she says as truth without correcting it. Like if you were as the host of a program now to make... To, for example. No, just, just, <laughs> I'm literally well, sitting right well, here wait as the host you're, of the program. Wait till you hear the next fine. sentence. The okay, next sentence. And we're going to accuse someone of being a sex offender or something mm. like that, or accuse somebody of committing a crime. The, the network would responsibly have to come in and correct you after that, right? And if you're putting it forward as information without some kind of check on it, yeah, that might actually play on the Sidney Powell stuff. So on the, and that's the legal aspect of it. And that's, you know, obviously extraordinarily important. But how does this play politically? How does this play in terms of not just the ratings? I don't mean that. But the idea of how they are evaluated in the course of a, you know, pre-election year at this point. What do you think? I mean, I think it plays into the con- the question about what is Fox News's true intention? Was it always to give its viewers an accurate perspective of what was going on? Or was it to play into conspiracy that, that uh, fed into the political mindset of its leaders or perhaps what they felt the viewers wanted to hear? So not necessarily about the truth or accuracy, but more about feeding into a very specific narrative. And I think that's really the PR problem that Fox News is facing is that um, these text messages and other evidence seems to indicate they weren't always interested in reporting the news. And we have to remember that for Dominion specifically, they were very aggressive from a PR standpoint after the 2020 election when all this misinformation about their voting machines. So they were very aggressive in saying, hey, let me fact check you. Let me send you some some sheets and some information so you can have accurate information. And what they're saying is Fox just declined, just refused to give that perspective despite having the truthful information. Will it matter? I think it matters. I think this is a key moment for Fox. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think the mo- remarkable thing is, you know, The Hill is a for-profit company like, like other journalism companies. But the, the business and the journalism was clashing, especially on their call about Arizona, which they were right on. But they were so upset by the fact that ratings went down from that. I mean, it's just another reminder, too. Be careful what you email. Be careful what you text, because I think, you know, some of these are remarkable. Now, the First Amendment, the courts usually defer to the, on, on First Amendment but at the same time, Fox was giving a lot of airtime and not pushing back. Some were, but not all. And that's what the court has to decide. What's your thought? I think it also is a reminder of just that conservative news bubble, particularly given the closeness of uh, Trump administration officials with hosts, people on the business side, back and forth. And that we saw the way we saw talking points you know, move from the administration across Trump I mean, across Fox, than to maybe Sean Hannity's radio show. I mean, that is part of how that conservative news bubble works in keeping people sort of in this cycle of misinformation. And I just think it shows that Fox, you know, is a willing participant in that. We're weeks away from this trial happening in April. This is a $1.6 billion 
dollar defamation suit. We're going to stick with this, everyone. Up next, a real world case in post Roe America, no longer a theoretical one. A man filing a wrongful death suit against friends of his ex-wife, accusing them of helping her to obtain abortion pills. A Texas man is suing his ex-wife's friends for wrongful death after they allegedly helped her to obtain abortion pills. It's one of the first major tests of laws cracking down on abortion ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned. CNN's Whitney Wilde has more on the lawsuit. Whitney? Laura, here are the details of this case. This man, Marcus Silva, says these three women helped his then-wife obtain abortion medication to induce an abortion back in July of 2022. That was after Texas Senate Bill 8 passed, and that bill is an effective ban on abortion after six weeks. Uh, So here's a direct quote from this lawsuit in which he says, Under the law of Texas, a person who assists a pregnant woman in obtaining a self-managed abortion has committed the crime of murder— and can be sued for wrongful death. Uh, In addition to these three women that he's bringing this lawsuit against, this man says that he intends to file a lawsuit against the manufacturer of the abortion medication. And all of this hinges on the details of Texas Senate Bill 8. And here's how this law is set up. Uh, Basically, what it does is make anybody liable who performs or induces an abortion in violation of this law, knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, intends to engage in the conduct described by Senate Bill 8. Uh, And notably, the damages here could be significant because there's a floor for the damages. They have to be at least $10,000. This man is seeking damages of more than a million dollars. And basically what he's doing is looking at everybody along the timeline here from manufacturer to uh, the women who helped, he says, helped his wife actually undergo this abortion. Uh, He says that they are all civilly liable here under the Texas law. This is certainly a case to watch because, again, it will solidify under the Texas law, at least, how many people and the type of people, really, this web of liability, the type of people who would be civilly liable for an abortion in Texas, Laura. Whitney Wild, thank you so much. Everyone back with the panel right now. Elliot, it's no longer theoretical. This was one of the concerns that people had about this perspective on legislation. It's now in effect. Is it a good case? There's a lot going on here, Laura, and a couple things, starting with the fact that it's not just a lawsuit because somebody had an abortion. It's a wrongful death lawsuit. It's He cites to the homicide statute and the wrongful death statute, which I think goes beyond at least the stated intent of SB8, which was just about abortions. They're bringing in this notion of homicide or murder or, you know, or, uh, you know, fetal life or whatever it might be, which uh, that's a broader legal strategy far beyond this one case. The other thing is that the person, the attorney bringing the case is the state, former state, I believe, solicitor general who helped craft the legal strategy behind it. This is not about two parties or, or three parties in Texas. This is a nationwide issue and they're trying to bring it beyond, I think, uh, just go beyond Texas. But I know well, SB8, you know, was sort of the canary in the coal mine because when we saw that the Supreme Court was not going to get involved in SB8, which is really vigilantism. I mean, that's the piece that this adds that says if you give someone a pill, if you drive someone to a, a hospital, you too can be criminally liable. Um, and this is, again, part of the parade of horrors that many of us talked about when the decision came down in terms of the kinds of cases we're going to see, the kinds of horrible choices women are going to be faced 
with the danger to women's lives. I mean, there's a whole story behind why this woman felt that she needed to have an abortion that we don't even know. And as we learned by the other case in Texas, those five women, horrendous stories of women whose lives were in danger. And this issue is not going away. Reproductive freedom is going to be a hot issue in 2024 because we're seeing a number of other states that have these measures coming online as we did last year. And it's going to continue to be top of mind for women. I mean, Bob, the, the midterms were referred to in part as Rovember in, rela- in sure. relation to what was going on. Um, and there's also, I want to note, the woman who actually was was the one who had the medication abortion cannot be sued under this particular law or prosecuted in the same respect. But it's the fact that others who were assisting in some way or some way in general, that's really the concern. This is, again, no longer hypothetical. You know, you go from the campaign trail where everyone's saying this could happen and sounding the alarm to this is actually happening. Yep. What is the impact going to be? It's Texas, but Texas really was in many respects the litmus test for how other states then operated. That's right. And we're, and we're seeing it, whether it's um, court challenges or legislation in Florida, lowering, uh, there's a, a bill to lower the threshold to six weeks. So this is going to continue, as Karen said. And listen, the Republicans running for president, they're, they're gonna, they may even go further. They may say, well, the woman should be liable, you know, so, because they're courting the base. And this is going to be a huge issue. Uh, in, it was in 2022. And next year, it's going to be a big yeah, issue. If they court, oh, one second, if they court the base, though, they got to then go to a general. And the polling says otherwise on views for abortion. Right. I mean, we have to say Senate Bill 8 of Texas is working the way it was intended. Um, and so in a case like this in Texas might play well for a Republican primary for that far white ultra conservative base. And it's probably going to be fine in a solid red state like Texas. But is this the conversation Republicans want us to be having as a nation when it comes to abortion? Uh, Again, we're talking about a friend being sued who said, if you need to come to my house to have a place to take the medication and I'll take care of you. Now she's being sued and charged with homicide. You know, that's what the conversation's going to be about. And it's not going to play well nationally because we saw what happened in the midterms. Uh, we saw how abortion played out nationally. So it's not necessarily winning in places where this kind of thing is a toss up. But, you know, in places where Republicans are in control, this is the conversation they have been forcing. They want to have it. Well, we'll see if it actually what happens in the long run. Again, this is an active case right now. And as Elliot mentioned, the man representing um, the, for, the husband is the former Texas Solicitor General who was an architect of this very legislation. So we'll see what happens next. A murder case is casting a shadow over the seasons, well, for the Alabama men's basketball team. This says March Madness begins. You probably have seen these headlines. I'll tell you what it's all about next. Well, a high-profile murder case is casting a cloud over Alabama's Crimson Tide as March Madness is beginning. The team is facing questions after its star player, Brandon Miller, was linked in court to the fatal shooting of 23-year-old Jamia Harris. Former Alabama player Darius Miles has been arrested and charged in the case for allegedly aiding and abetting the shooting. Another man, Michael Lynn Davis, has been charged with actually firing the fatal shot. A law enforcement officer has testified that Miles texted Brandon Miller to bring Miles' gun to the scene where the shooting happened. Miller is not charged with any crime and continues to play for the Crimson Tide. 
Joining me now, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. I'm glad you're here because, look, this is a complex case. I mean, Miller, as I mentioned, has not been charged. He is not considered a suspect and has been a cooperating witness to police. But walk us through what we know. This is this is really a tough one because we are at the height of what should be it's one of the greatest times in sports of the year, March Madness, men's and women's basketball tournament, Laura. And instead, we're talking about the murder, as you mentioned, of Jamia Harris and the involvement of the Alabama men's basketball players. Um, what we know from the police uh, is that Brandon Miller was asked to bring that gun back to his buddy. He did do that. And that gun ended up being the murder weapon, according to police, in killing of this young woman. A legal weapon, though. It was it, legally owned, exactly, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. The lawyer for Brandon Miller says he didn't know what he was bringing back and he, he never touched the gun. And I guess he knew it was bringing back, but never touched the gun and just happened to be there. Um, it gets really messy because Alabama's basketball staff knew on January 14th, right at that time, that Miller, who is one of the best players in the country, if not the best player in the country, a freshman, six foot nine, is going to be an NBA lottery pick, obviously a game-changing kind of player. They knew he'd been at the scene. It wasn't until February 21st that the rest of the nation found out. So they kept that secret. He kept playing. They never said a word. When we finally found out, obviously, that he was involved, that the police said, yes, he had been at the scene and brought the gun back, um, that, that it was not arrested. At that moment, it became a huge sports story, a story in the sports world. Uh, and everyone was asking, why aren't you suspending him? Why is he still playing? The coach, Nate Oates, said, well, wrong spot, wrong time. Terrible thing to say. You know, we can't control these guys all the time. He had to apologize for that. So damage control, mistakes, missteps, a huge controversy right in the midst of one of the best times in sports in the in the year and um and her what, family i mean angered angered of course she's she's lost her life right mm -hmm. there have been many people when he's on the court or when alabama is going to be playing let alone for march madness there has been outrage from some fans. They've been ch they've been chanting that he shouldn't be there. They, lock him right, up. Lock him up. Sure. It's happening. And, and fans will do that, right? I mean, fans will chant anything at anyone. We know that from uh, students' sections in, all over the country. Um, I I think it's appalling that he's playing. Now, I, I understand that he has not been charged with something. But here's the thing. Kids have been suspended from teams and from fraternities and sororities for bad grades, for missing classes, for being late, for insubordination, for looking at your coach the wrong way, sideways, being disagreeable, and you're not suspending him for this? Why don't you, if you're the Alabama men's basketball team, just say it. We want to win. We don't care. But suspend him for what, Christine? Suspend him, just, just indefinitely suspend him because he was at the scene of a murder. I mean, he's, he represents Alabama men's basketball. Uh, you can, as a university, make decisions uh, and say, you know what? This is unacceptable. You shouldn't have been there. What are you doing? Even if he was, even if, if he had just been a bystander who was at the scene of a crime? Well, he did bring the he, gun. I know, I'm saying, I, yeah. I know in this instance it's more than that, but the idea of, and there's been calls for him to be suspended, but sure. the indefinite nature of it, would it have been satisfactory to people had they come out immediately, suspended him? for a week or two before and then still allowed him to play later on, I suspect it'd be the same reaction. Well, but it's, that's a great point because at least there would have been punishment. And frankly, they would have probably been better off PR-wise, whether, again, we're thinking of this poor woman who is dead and her family. But if you look at the PR part of it and the sports part of it, if you suspend him in February, then guess what? You probably aren't getting asked these questions at this particular time. 
Christine Brennan, thank you for your insight thank today. You. A lot about this. It's a complex one, everyone. And a quick program we don't tell you about. Tune in tomorrow night for CNN's primetime, Inside the Madness. The new NCAA president, Charlie Baker, joins Chris Wallace. Can the former Massachusetts governor transform basketball? Well, that's tomorrow night at 9 Eastern. Everyone, thank you for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.